glad you're here today. Uh, you know, in our main main service, we had a guest speaker. And you know what that means, don't you? That means there's less people usually in church when they find that out. Uh, this speaker was from England. His name was Jay Johns. And uh, it was remarkable that when he gave the invitation, there probably were, they didn't stop coming for a while. There were probably 20 or some people came. I don't know the exact number. But I imagine if God moves in the second service, you may see 50 or 60 people coming down. And you know what? His message was very simple. It was just this clear gospel presentation. And when you're listening to it, you know, you're saying, well, that's interesting. That's funny. You know, that, you really are sort of surprised at the invitation. And that just shows you when, uh, when a person has a gift of evangelism, God uses them for, at the invitation time. And that's what Billy Graham used to say about himself. He said, I do not, he says, you know, I'm just an average preacher. He said, but I don't understand it. When I give an invitation, everybody's at home. And that's sort of the mark of an evangelist. So there's a, uh, let's be praying today that many people will come to Christ as a result of that. Uh, this year, uh, this day in, uh, was it 1517, Martin Luther signed, put his uh, 95 thesis to the, uh, nailed it to the door of the Wittenberg Chapel, and uh, the Protestant Reformation started. And uh, we are Protestants. We're not Catholic, we're not Greek or Russian Orthodox, we're Protestants. And it was all because of Martin Luther. And they were called Protestants because Luther protested the practice of indulgences in the Catholic Church. And that an indulgence is where you pay a certain fee to the Catholic Church and you get certain days out of purgatory. You get to buy your way out of purgatory. That's what an indulgence was. And it was called a Reformation because he tried to reform the Catholic Church, but they wouldn't be reformed. And so he was an Augustinian monk, and he broke away with the Catholic, from the Catholic Church, and the Protestant movement was started. And so that's what all the denominations, Methodist, Baptist, Presbyterian, Lutherans, and so on are, they are Protestant denominations. So a lot of churches that are high churches, that have liturgies, follow the church calendar, this is a very special day for them, and they'll have a special order worship, and they'll be preaching on justification by faith, which was the main doctrine of the Reformation. And in lower churches, lower churches are like Baptist churches. <laughs> we are hesitant to do things like that. We should probably do more of it. But anyway. Okay, well we're in John chapter 19, so open your Bible to the Gospel of John chapter 19. If you need a Bible, there's one on your table, so please take that. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we're going to start today at verse 17. The Gospel of John, chapter 19, and verse 17. Now one thing that we, most of us know, either because you went to another church or you memorized it somewhere in your early days, and that's the Apostles' Creed. How many people have heard of the Apostles' Creed? Oh, how many people know the Apostles' Creed? A lot of them. Apostles' Creed says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, 
He was born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, what? Dead and buried. And we're going to talk about uh, part of that Apostles' Creed today because last week what happened is that Jesus was arrested. He was tried before Pontius Pilate. He was found guilty of a crime and turned over to be executed. And so today we're going to look at his death. Next week we'll look at his burial and his resurrection. But we'll pick up at verse 17. So he's been turned over for execution. So look what it says in verse 17. And he, that's Jesus, bearing the cross, meaning having to bear the full weight of the cross, went to a place called the place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side, and Jesus in the center. Now, let me make a few observations about these verses right here. Just a couple comments. Number one, according to Roman custom, if a person was found guilty of a capital crime and they were not a citizen, they were crucified. If you were a citizen, you had your head decapitated. Instant death. If you were not a citizen, you had to die on a cross. And they forced the person found guilty that carried the crossbar over his shoulders. And that's what Jesus is doing. Now remember, he has not been, been to sleep for 30 hours. And uh, he's been beaten twice. And so he is absolutely exhausted. And they had to carry this crossbar from the judgment hall, where the trial took place, all the way to the place of execution which in this case is called Golgotha in the Hebrew. Now the route they took was the longest route from the judgment hall to the execution site through the city. And they did that for a reason. Uh, in Latin that's called the Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering. And you would have to carry that cross through this long, windy road up to the crucifixion site in order that as many people as possible would see you pass by. And you would get a message, hey, you don't ever want to be found guilty of a capital crime, and that could be you. So it was intended to drive the fear of Rome into the masses. So they say they brought him to a place uh, in verse 17, to a place called a place of the skull. Now in Hebrew it's called Golgotha. In Latin it's Calvaria, from which we get our word Calvary. And so, today, there sits on that site the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And that is where Jesus was crucified. Uh, the rule of thumb, you know, there's a lot of sites in Jerusalem. And early on, the church recognized certain sites where Jesus died, where he was born, and so forth. And they would put a church on that site. So we believe that that is the original site of where Jesus died, where the church of the sepulcher sits today. And then what would happen is when they got to that site, they would take that crossbar and lie, lay it on the ground, and then they would put the criminal on his back, and they would nail his wrist to the crossbar. Then they would lift that crossbar up, and there was a permanent vertical post that had grooves in it, and they would set that crossbar into that groove. 
And then they would nail the person's feet to that permanent crossbar. So his hands were nailed to the horizontal bar, his feet were nailed to the vertical bar, and then in that vertical bar, or that vertical post, there were two holes. And they would drive uh, like a dowel stick, a heavy dowel stick, or a pole into those holes. One at the feet level and one at the hip level, so that the person who was being crucified could push up on his feet and uh, allow himself to breathe a little bit, just helping to, to breathe. And so this is, uh, if they didn't have that, the person would hang down there and fluid would fill his lungs and he would die fairly quickly. So that is what happened here. Now that verse also says in verse 18 that there was uh, two others who were crucified with him, one on one side, one on his left side, and one on his other side, Jesus in the center. Now, probably these were two companions of Barabbas who was let go. They were all crooks. <laughs> they were revolutionaries. Barabbas has let, been let go, and Jesus takes Barabbas' place right there in the central cross. Then the next thing we see is the charge. Look at verse 19. Now, Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. And they usually either nailed it on the cross or they put it around the person's neck who was condemned, like a sign hanging around his neck. And the writing said, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And many of the Jews read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And that's another thing that they would do. They always they had these crucifixion sites right along the major road fairs that led into the city. So, especially like at Passover, we had thousands of people flocking into the city, pilgrims flocking into the city. Uh, they would see the crucifixion was taking place. Another way that Rome said, you better not end up on a cross like that yourself. It was, again, an opportunity to drive the fear of Rome and the people and keep them under subjection. As they would come near the city, verse 20, and that sign was written in Hebrew, that's the official language of the Jewish people, Greek, which was the language of, um, of commerce. It was the common language of commerce. And people in Judea, that would be the Jews, would speak Hebrew. Other people would speak Greek. It was an average language, and some Jews knew Greek. And then it was written in Latin. That was the official language of the Roman Empire, the language of government. So it was written in three languages. Now what happens is that there's an opposition to the sign. The Jews are not happy that that's what Pilate put up there. And so you see that in verse 21. Therefore the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but he said I am king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I've written. Now, you know from last week, Pilate and the Jews did not get along well. The Jews have really bamboozled Pilate into killing Jesus. I mean, they've sort of blackmailed him, and he's had to go along. But he's not going to move another inch at this point. This is Pilate's last dig at the Jews. Uh, there's your king hanging on the cross. And so they protest that. Now, what we can see next in this passage are the events surrounding the crucifixion. The first thing you'll notice in verses 23 and 24 are the activity of the soldiers. We're going to see several groups who are doing things. First, the activity of the soldiers. Look at verse 23. 
And the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts. To each soldier a part. And also the tunic. Now the tunic was without a seam. It was woven from top from the top in one piece. Therefore they said amongst themselves, Let us not tear it, but let's cast lots for it, whose it shall be. Now one of the perks of having the death being on the death squad, <laughs> being part of this death brigade, was that you got to take the possessions of the crucified person. And uh, that sort of was a benefit, you know, for having the, this bad detail. Now, there are four soldiers. When Jesus walked through the town with the cross across uh, over his shoulders, four soldiers followed him. There were always four Roman soldiers on the death brigade. So what they did, here it says, there are two kinds of garments that they split. In verse 23 it says, there was... Uh, an outer garment. See, outer garments. They took his garments and made four parts, each soldier a part. So these would be things like, you know, his uh, cloak, his sandals, his shawl, all those kinds of things. And then the next thing you see in verse 23 is this tunic. That's an undergarment. But don't think of it as like underclothes, like we think of underclothes. <coughs> I mean, who would want that? <laughs> no one would want your underclothes, right? Think of it like this. I'm wearing a suit. This coat would be my outer garment. It's not touching any of my skin. My shirt would be my undergarment. The dress shirt would be my undergarment. That's like the tunic. Now, I have something under there, don't I? I have a t-shirt. But that's not what they're talking about. They're talking about what would be equivalent to our dress shirt. Only what they wore in those days was a tunic. And notice it was one piece. That means it was like a poncho. It was one piece with a hole and you just put it over and then he had a cloak that went around, sort of like a robe that went around him and he had a, you know, a belt that went around him and so forth. So that's how they're going to divide this. And for the tunic, what they end up doing, since it's only one piece, you can't divide it. It's no good if you cut it in four pieces. It's woven cloth, it all come apart. They decide to cast lots. So I'm going to roll the dice. Who gets it? We don't know who won that lottery. But you know, several years ago, there was a movie made about that event. It was called The Road. Anybody ever see that movie, The Road? Who knows who the star was? Not Charlton Heston. Victor Mature. Whoever heard of that name? Victor Mature. That, that shows you how old I am. That's another way, uh, Bob, that's another way you can find out. Did you ever see the road? You know who <laughs> <Victor Mature? laughs> So, in that movie, the guy who got the road, you know, he was cursed the rest of his life. He wanted to get rid of that road because it, uh, he kept having these guilt pangs or whatever. So that's the activity of the soldiers. Now I want you to look at the activity of the women. Okay, the women. So it says this. First, at the end of verse 24, they, they said they did all that, at the end of verse 24, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. 
this is a good example of where the soldiers are fulfilling prophecy and they don't know they're fulfilling prophecy. God predicted that this would happen. Okay, now we look at the activity of the women, verse 25. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the son of Clopas, his mother, his mother's sister, third, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and fourth, Mary Magdalene. So what we have here is we have four soldiers and we have four women mentioned. The soldiers are not mentioned by name and the women we will know who each one of those is. Uh, two sets of four. One having to do their duty, show up at this crucifixion. The other one there because of their loving concern for Jesus. One who is getting perks as a result of the crucifixion, and one who is broken over the crucifixion. They are getting a loss. They're going to lose their best friend. Now look at these women. Look who each one of the women is. Look at verse 25. The first was his mother. That's Mary. We first met Mary back in John chapter 2. She was attending a wedding. Remember that? Now she's about to attend the funeral. That's how John sort of lays out his book. And in that first event, Jesus says to Mary, remember she wants him to provide wine and all this, he says, woman, my hour has not yet come. Guess what? It has come. So we see Mary now facing Jesus, and his hour has come. He is ready to die. Now look at the second woman in verse 25. And his mother's sister. Now if we had time, I could take you through other New Testament passages, and you would discover, for example, in Mark 15, her name is Salome. So Mary has a sister, and her name is Salome. You would also discover in Matthew 27 that she is the wife of Zebedee, the mother of of James and John. That means two of Jesus' apostles, James and John, are his cousins. This is a family affair. <coughs> so, and that would be John, the beloved disciple, you know, the one who writes this book, and his brother James. These were the sons of thunder. Remember those guys? Okay. Now, who's that third woman? Verse 25. She's called... Mary, the wife of Clopas. We know from Mark 15 that she is the mother of James the Younger. Jesus had two apostles named James. One, James and John. The other, a younger kid named James also. So that is that apostle's mother. And then there's a fourth woman in verse 25, and that's Mary Magdalene, out of whom Jesus cast seven demons. These are his disciples, female disciples. And notice, these would be women who followed him. And, uh, and by this point, his mother Mary is following him. Now, females, four females listed. Now, let me ask you this. Where's Peter? <laughs> Peter's not around. Now, we're going to see that the one disciple who loves him, John, he's here, but everybody else has abandoned Jesus. But the women have not abandoned Jesus. 
And uh, while we think of the Jesus movement originally being a male movement, we discover that it was as much a female movement as a male movement. In fact, when next week when we get to the resurrection, it's going to be a woman who hears about the resurrection first. It'll be a woman who preaches the resurrection first to Peter and tells him, hey, he's risen. And sort of Peter's always in the background from this point on until the last chapter. So these are the four women, the activity of the women. They're standing there mourning over Jesus, crying over him. Now look at the activity of Jesus for this one text. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and his disciple whom he loved, that's John, standing by, he said to his mother, woman, same thing that he said in chapter 2, behold your son. And he points to John, we think. And then in verse 27 it says, Then he said to his disciple, Behold your mother. And he points to Mary. And what we have here is that Jesus is in his last moments of life making sure his mother is cared for. And he turns her over to his beloved disciple, John. So what Jesus is doing, he's establishing new relationships. He's forming new relationships. Mary will now be John's mother. And John will now be Mary's son. He is forming a new community of faith, which today we call the church. Where is Jesus' brothers? Now, we think that they probably showed up somewhere because it's Passover. They all lived up in Galilee, 70 miles away. Usually Jews would travel down to Jerusalem and celebrate the Passover feast. But guess what? We don't see them standing here. If they are, they aren't mentioned. And if they are, Jesus ignores them. And he turned his mother over to John as he establishes a new kind of relationship, a relationship of faith, faith, faith-based relationship, a faith-based community. And then at the end of verse 27, it says, And from that hour, the disciple, that's John, took her to his own home. Now, the word home is not in the original Greek, and your Bible may have an italic there for home, but that's the indication. He takes her as his own mother, probably back to his own home. He takes care of her. Now look at verse 28. After this, we're still dealing with Jesus and his activities. After this, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scriptures might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now we see something very interesting. Uh, first of all, if he's asking for a drink, that's one thing. And I guess you would be thirsty after what he's been through. But it says that he, he did this, that scriptures might be fulfilled. you see that? While the others, the soldiers, are fulfilling scripture and don't realize it, Jesus not only realizes he's fulfilling scriptures, he conscience, consciously fulfills the scriptures. Notice the word that. Isn't there a word that in verse 28? Let's see. After this, Jesus knowing that, see, in order that all scriptures were now being fulfilled, uh, he did this, and he said, I thirst. And because there's an Old Testament scripture that says he thirsts. Now look at verse 29. Here's the response. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there. This is uh, cheap wine. That's what it means. It's not good wine. It's cheap wine. Where I come from, you say Thunderbird. <laughs> yeah, well, have you ever heard of that? That's another question you could ask him, Bob. 
you know what Thunderbird is? Does they know that? You know, you know, how old they are? I don't think they think Thunderbird is. In my neighborhood, people drank Thunderbird. This is Thunderbird. This is the cheap stuff that was that they always had on hand in case they needed to give the crucified person a drink. So I don't know even know what verse I'm in anymore. But anyway, verse 29. Now, a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with the sour wine, the cheap wine, and put it on hyssop and put it to his mouth. Now, what John really is trying to do is showing you the key word there is the word hyssop. Hyssop was a bushy... Uh, a tree, a, pl a plant, and you could take one of the stalks, one of the branches off, and it had you know, leaves on it. And they used it to dip in, uh, in fact, I would say that back in Exodus, uh, remember when they smeared the blood on the blood post and the death angel passed over the firstborn of the Jews? It said they used a hyssop branch to put the blood on the blood post. So John wants to make sure you connect Jesus' death to the Passover. God's only son, God's firstborn son, will not be passed over. Instead of his blood being used, his blood is being used that the death angel will pass over us. But Jesus is not being passed over. And so it, John wants you to see that his death is a Passover sacrifice type of thing. John always deals with that. Jesus is a lamb that's going to be slain from the beginning of the earth. Okay, now look at the death of Jesus in verse 30. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And, what is finished? <laughs> That's the question. It is finished. We always come up with all kinds of theories. Uh, he could say, you know, that's it. I can't take another breath. It could be that his... his commission of revealing God to the world is now complete. You know, his, he's completed his redemptive mission, something like that. Probably something where along that line. He said it is finished in verse 30. And then bowing his head, he gave up the spirit. Now, what did he give up? This is the question. The word spirit here is a word you're all familiar with. It's pneuma, from which we get our word, you know, uh, pneumatic, uh, pneumonia, you know. And it can be translated one of three ways. One way is wind, and it has nothing to do with that. The other two ways it can be translated is breath. And guess what you do when you die? You give up your breath. You take one last breath, and you, that's why we call you expire. You're not inspiring. You're not taking it in. You're going, it could mean he gave up his breath took his last breath and he died. The word can also be translated spirit. Not soul, the way we think of it. But remember when Jesus was baptized, what came down and rested on him? The spirit rested upon him. So now that he's dead, it could be that he gave up the spirit that will then be divided later on on Pentecost and poured out upon all believers. Which shows you, if it's that case, Jesus was full of the Spirit, unlimited, and guess what? Each one of us gets a portion of the Spirit of Christ. We're not sure which one it is, but either he, we know that he's probably both. You know, Maybe that's why it's put in here this way. But 
He dies. And that's the point that, wants, that John wants to make. And he gives up the spirit. Now look at verse 31. Now we come to what I'm going to call post-mortem activities. Because he's dead. You ready? Post-mortem activities. Verse 31. Notice the first thing that happens is the Jews make a request. Okay? Look at verse 31. Therefore, because it was preparation day, means preparation for the Passover, that bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs, the three criminals' legs, might be broken and that they might be taken away. Now, under normal conditions, Rome left dead bodies on the cross for days on end, and they would just rot on the cross. And vultures would come down and pick the meat off of the bones. And then the families would be allowed to take the bones. And they would put those bones in a bone box. And they would bury those bones in a bone box. And then at the end of the year, they would go and bring the bone box out of the tomb and they would then have an official burial, which took place a year later. But Rome made an exception for Jews, because according to Jewish custom, you had to bury a dead Jew within 24 hours. It's still a custom today. And when it was a holiday, let's say someone died on a Friday, and it was going to be a Sabbath, which starts... 6 o'clock Friday night, or you're going to have a high holy day the next day, uh, you couldn't even keep that body on the cross for 24 hours, and the Jews would ask them to hasten the death of those people by breaking the legs. So that's what we have right here. And so when you look at verse 30, 31, it says, they requested that their legs be broken. Now, why break their legs? What was it about breaking the legs? Couldn't lift up. And if you couldn't lift up and you slumped over, what happened is that your chest cavity would fill with fluid. And then your heart would have to pump harder. And then you'd lose more blood faster. You'd pump out blood faster. And the person would be thrown into shock. And then you would either die of asphyxiation or you would die of uh, heart failure. So that's what they request. So now, that's the activity of the Jews. Now we see post-mortem activity of the soldiers in verse 32. Then the soldiers came and they broke the legs. Now watch this very carefully, because if you get this, this is sort of interesting. They came and they broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. The way they broke legs is they took an iron mallet and they broke the legs. Like a sledgehammer. They broke the legs simultaneously. Two soldiers go to one side of the cross. The other two soldiers go to the other side, to the criminal on the other side of Jesus. The one soldier breaks the left leg, the other soldier breaks the right leg of that one guy, and at the same time they're doing it with the other. Four legs are being broken simultaneously, and they meet together right in the middle. Now they're going to break the legs of the middle guy. And when they get there, they see that Jesus is already dead. And so that's what this is about right here. They see that Jesus is dead. It says when they came to Jesus in verse 33, 
They saw that he was already dead. They did not break his legs. And you can almost hear that conversation as they meet in the middle and they look up and say, this guy's dead already. Don't break his leg. But one of the guys is not convinced that he's dead. He said, well, we better make sure. And that's why you see the word but, or now in that next verse, isn't it there? But, see, but, one of the soldiers, see, he wasn't convinced. He took his spear, see, he speared his side. The soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out, which was a sign of the person who was dead. They hit into the... Uh, pericardial sac and the water came out and he probably hit the heart or just part of the body and, and blood and water came out. The sign that he's dead so that's, that's the end of that. Now what we have next is John's explanation to us. Look at verse 35. It says this. And he who had seen that's John who was there just imagine Mary's there seeing this happen. Right? He who had seen, that's the beloved disciple John. These things were done. That the scriptures might be fulfilled, not one bone, not one of his bones shall be broken. That is a quote from, I think, Psalm 34. That one bone should be broken. And again, the scripture says, they shall look upon him whom they pierced, which is Zechariah 10, uh, uh, 12, 10. So here you have the first one, they didn't break his bones. That was a fulfillment of Old Testament scripture. They looked upon him whom they pierced. That is a fulfillment of Old Testament scripture. And again, what we have is the soldiers fulfilling scripture without realizing. But they're all falling into God's plan. And so Jesus is dead. So now everybody's looking up. And they see Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, and the cross is Jesus' throne. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead. Buried. And the third day he rose from the dead. Next week we'll look at the burial of Christ, which starts in verse 38, and the resurrection of Christ. Lord, we thank you for this passage of Scripture. We can get a sense without being sensational of what happened, the gravity of the situation, how Jesus is forming a new faith-based community, new kinds of sets of relationships. We thank you, Lord, that the Holy Spirit that he gave up and now abides with us and that he has formed us into a new community of believers. Oh, Lord, help us to appreciate these texts. Help us to live a life realizing the cost that Jesus paid for our salvation. Help us, Lord, to be positive witnesses for Christ. In his name we pray. Thank you.